This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a good rating to help others find Out of Water. Welcome, friends, to another edition of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. We're going to be wrapping up our coverage of the world before the flood and the world right after the flood this week as we come to the 10th and 11th chapters in the book of Genesis. And there's some really, really interesting things in here, Sam. You and I have been talking Mm -hmm. about them and sort of getting set up for all of this, but these are the kinds of things that are still going on in our world today. Um, I'm really struck by that. I'm struck by how little has actually changed from back then until now. Yeah. I mean, you see some of the, uh, it's like the fall, you know, Genesis three is super applicable to our daily lives. Yeah. And, you know, we're, we're recording this, not knowing the results of an election. It's going to be released, you know, hopefully by then there might be some hint of, of who won this thing. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe some hint. I'm hoping that by Christmas we have results, but yes. I, I, the part I just hope that it settles. Yes. But anyway, the this what we're talking about today, where we get into Babel and Nimrod, has tremendous implications it does. for for what we're walking through individually and as a country. Um, there's great wisdom here. Yeah. So, and it begins with the story of three sons, the three sons mm-hmm. of Noah. Now, we're not going to read all the way through the genealogy because, folks, we've already heard Mark labor with trying to pronounce <laughs> all these names and sounding like, you know, if it's not, if it, it basically, I'm just going to rename everybody. Noah had three sons, Tom, Dick, and Harry. Um, you know, <laughs> but uh, no, so, so we are going to be talking about Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So, so the flood is kind of ca- encapsulated from Genesis six to Genesis nine, and then when you get to Genesis ten, it's like the Bible takes a breath and gives you this, like almost a parenthetical chapter that like says, a reset okay, or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's right. it's saying, okay, from Noah, who is the father of all humanity that's alive today. Noah had three sons, and this whole chapter in chapter 10 is called the Table of Nations. And and what it's getting at is, okay, Ham's descendants go and populate this region, and they're going to form all of these tribes and nations. Shem is going to go to this region. Uh, Japheth is going to go to this region. And where all these different tribes and nations developed from, all of them come from Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Now, Ham was the one that was the not-so-good son (laughs) after the flood. Shem and Japheth were the more righteous sons. Does that play itself out here in terms of the nations? It it actually does. So there's one son, and and this actually is kind of an interesting thing in in church history. One of the more shameful um, things that came out of church history is when the church tried to justify slavery by saying, well, Ham was the wicked son, and so all of his descendants are cursed. And Ham goes on to father Cush, which is Ethiopia and, and Africa, mm-hmm. Egypt, Put, and Canaan. 
And so Canaan is the one that bears the curse from God, and those descendants go and they dwell in the promised land. Israel will eventually go to war against them. But there is no curse against Cush, Egypt, and Put. And so Ham's sons will go down. I mean, you can imagine there's an explosion, and each of Ham's sons kind of goes in one of three directions. Uh, Ham is going to go south and to the west and to Africa. Mm-hmm. Japheth's descendants are going to go north and west into Europe, and largely Shem is going to be in that region of the Middle East and to the east. That's gen- that's an oversimplification, but right. that's kind of how it plays out. Um, and so during during the Civil War, there were actually churches that justified slavery by saying, well, you know, Ham's descendants were cursed. That is a terrible, <laughs> absolutely terrible yeah. um, understanding of Scripture. Even Canaan – um, you know, Canaan is cursed, but there will be descendants that are brought into the covenant people of God who are Canaanite. Like uh, when when they conquer Jericho, it'll be Rahab who's in the city, who's a Canaanite that's brought into the genealogy of Jesus. So to reach those kinds of conclusions is so wicked and such a departure from the spirit of Scripture, as we'll see in our conversation today. Um, that they're awful. But Ham, actually, his descendants are going to found some of the mightiest empires of the ancient world. So from Ham come the Egyptians, one of the mightiest empires, sure. the, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, um, the Akkadians, some of the most famous ancient empires in the world mm-hmm. come out of Ham. Now, uh, Ham's one of Ham's sons is Cush, and then it says uh, in verse 8 of chapter 10, it says, Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first Such on. Such a great name. It is. I, and at some, maybe this is archaic, but when <laughs> I was a kid, if somebody called you a Nimrod, that was a bad thing. Yeah, like, very bad. Right. Like Nimrod, you know, that, yeah. that sort of thing. It's and like it, saying idiot. Yeah, like idiot. You know, and well, it's, a, it, it's an unusual sounding name. Um, but, but this particular Nimrod was somebody that was a very powerful and charismatic person. He was a mm-hmm. leader. Um, it says he was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. Now, you and I were talking about, before we turned on the recorder, about what that means when it mm-hmm. says a mighty man. Yeah, it's, it's a warrior, a man of war, right. somebody that was to be feared. And wasn't it um, – we were talking about this in light of the Nephilim, which we talked about in a previous episode where mm-hmm. uh, it says that these were the men of old, the men of renown, and that mm-hmm. was like this idea that they were men that wanted to make a name for themselves, that it was a, there was a That's very right. – right. And isn't that sort of the same thing here with, with Nimrod, is that when it says Nimrod was a mighty man, this idea is that Nimrod was somebody also that wanted to make a name for himself? Yeah, and you're going to see that. Nimrod is going to build the Tower of Babel, and so when we get into the next chapter – It'll say one of their motivations for building the Tower of Babel was to make a name for themselves. And so this idea is Nimrod was a mighty man. Everybody knew who Nimrod was, and you wanted to stay out of his way because he was a bad man. (laughs) He was uh, someone that Jim Croce would write a song about. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, there you go. So it says he was a mighty hunter. Uh, before the Lord, mm-hmm. and and the, then it says, therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. It's yeah. like, thanks for that. Thanks for that. We appreciate <laughs> the we appreciate that the the repetition there. Um, what does it mean when it says that Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord? It's like Nimrod was out there. You, you can't so, get the impression of Nimrod bringing the deer in and going, look, God, <laughs> I bagged you a deer. Yeah, and God's going, oh my goodness, you're such a great hunter. You're a mighty hunter, Nimrod. <laughs> 
<laughs> but this is one of those this is one of those areas where the English just does not communicate what the Hebrew is getting after. And so we've already we've talked before about how a person's name, particularly in the scriptures, it almost becomes prophetic. And the the word even the name Nimrod literally means rebellious one. The Hebrew word marad means to rebel. And so Nimrod it means rebellious one. And then it says, you know, he's a mighty man. That means he's, you know, he's a warrior. He's at war. He's fighting. Everybody's afraid of him. Everybody knows who he is. And then it says he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And what this means, that you know, that word that, that's against, you know, mm-hmm. that yeah, we, we talked, talked about, about in previous that. episodes, right. like you right. can lean against a wall or whatever. Sure. Um, when it says that he was a mighty hunter before the Lord – what it's getting at is he's in the face of the Lord. Okay. He's he's literally in opposition. And so when it says he's a mighty hunter before the Lord, like if I said, hey, I'm going to appear before the king, it's like we're facing one another. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, we're looking at – we're adversarial. He's looking at me. I'm looking at him. Our faces are against one another is, is the idea. Mm-hmm. But this is he's a mighty hunter in the face of the Lord. Um, and all of this, when you're when you're reading this in the original Hebrew, it's communicating to you, this is somebody who's rebelling. And so we're coming right out of the flood, right, where God has shown mercy and he's giving humanity another shot at this. And it's saying, okay, here's Shem, Ham, and Japheth's sons, and right out of the gate, you've got a rebel. And he's not just a rebel who wars against other men. He's somebody who sets his face against the Lord. Mm-hmm. So you get this, it's it's telling you there are two kingdoms that are emerging, and this is going to be a story that is going to go for the rest of Scripture. One of them is going to be the kingdom of God that yields and says, you know what, God's desires are preeminent, they are the most important, I'm looking forward to a home and a citizenship that is in heaven, and Nimrod, as we'll see in the next verse, is going to start building his kingdoms here. And those kingdoms are going to be very much about what's best for me. You know, I wonder if it has, in a way, if it's like, um, you know, in the Ten Commandments, it says, thou shall have no other gods before me. And I mm-hmm. think that uh, for a lot of people that interpret that, what does it mean before me, they'll think, well, it just means that we, you know, we don't have any other gods that are more important to us than God. Mm-hmm. Like it's a, it's a, a pre- and, and there is that aspect to it, but it's actually, God is actually saying, no, no, there's no other gods in my vision. There's like, That's correct. they don't, it's not that you can have other gods, but they're just not more important to me. There are no other gods, mm-hmm. period. You could just put a period there instead of the before me. So this idea of Nimrod is a mighty hunter before the Lord is, if it's before the Lord, that's not a good thing. Right. Yeah. It's like he's in my face. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's really what it's getting after here. And then it says, so he emerges really as the first king. You, you never have prior to this point, you find, you know, Cain goes off and he builds a city. Right. And you're assuming he's got some power there, but he's never described as a king. Nimrod is going to seize authority and he's going to build his own empire, which, you know, would be in the ancient Fertile Crescent all through Sumer. Um, 
and he's going to build this empire that includes cities that have tremendous significance in the ancient world. Yeah. Very, very powerful cities. I mean, the list of names, I'm not going to read them all, but obviously it says the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. And then it mm-hmm. mentions things like Assyria and mm-hmm. Nineveh and all these other, you know. Akkad, which which Akkad, Akkad right. which is where we get Akkadia. Iraq, that's, that's the root from where Iraq comes from. So all of these. So it was a um, big empire. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's a, he's large and in charge. Right. <laughs> yeah. Big time. So now you say that this is going to be the beginning of, of two kingdoms. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously, I think we've tipped our hand here that this is going to be the bad kingdom. <laughs> you know, this is the, the kingdom of men, uh, you know, the, or the kingdom of, of men that want to be God. I don't know how you, per, which, yeah. how we would put that, but it's basically a rebellious that, kingdom. They want to replace God, basically. Mm-hmm. It's like we can run the show. So, so where's the other kingdom? Which one's the other yeah. kingdom? So the other kingdom is going to be the city of God. So St. Augustine, who was alive in the fourth and fifth century, he wrote a book called The City of God, and brilliantly, uh, what he gets into in that book is there's two cities, and, and what he means by that is kingdoms. Back in the ancient world, kingdoms were defined by the city that founded them. So like the Roman Empire, Rome, um, the Athenian Empire, Athens, uh, Babylonian Empire, Babylon. Um, so the city determined and gave influence to the entire kingdom, and so in the ancient world, when they talked about the city of man, they were talking about the whole world, but from a human ethic, a very self-centered, you know, what's best for man and me and selfishness kind of an idea where the city of God, which is the heavenly city, that we would, we would call heaven in the ancient world. They call it the New Jerusalem or the heavenly city mm-hmm. in the Bible. That is where you see the Lord and his will and his desires and his name as being most important to be exalted. You want glory to go to to that kingdom where Nimrod says, no, 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 no. I want the glory. Mm -hmm. I want the power. I want my kingdom here now, uh, and therefore I'm going to do what I want, not what he wants. And you see that play out very obviously when you get to the Tower of Babel, which, by the way, it says Nimrod founds Babel. He's probably also the king that's going to to lead people in the building of the Tower of Babel. And one interesting thing, this is just kind of a – I don't know why the Bible does this, but it does. We For the rest of Scripture, you'll see Babylon repeated multiple times. But the Hebrew word is – it's literally Babel. We just – we add the on, Babylon. Hmm. But it's the same place. Babel and Babylon are exactly the same. And so what's interesting is with Noah, you had the waters that came in creation. So Genesis 1 starts with a world overwhelmed with water. Then you get to Genesis 9, and you've got a world that's emerging out of the water. And Genesis 10, we're told that man builds a kingdom with a center, the beginning of his kingdom, at Babel. So man says, "Hey, I know we're gonna we're gonna form a kingdom. We're gonna we're gonna build all of our political power and everything else, and we're gonna start it in Babylon." And for the rest of Scripture, for the rest of the Bible, it's going to be a contest between the city of man, Babylon, and the city of God, which is the heavenly city. And you go all the way through Scripture, and in Revelation, it's no accident that it's the it's the New Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven triumphant. And the Lord is bringing judgment upon what city? Babylon. Babylon, sure. And so it, you're meant to see the whole of Scripture 
is a contest between these two cities. Which one will you serve? Which will be your primary? Are you after Babylon, this world, this kingdom, all the stuff that's going to perish here and now, um, that's going to slip through your fingertips that death will rob you of, and give all your allegiances to this world, or are you going to set your sights on the heavenly city? And that's going to be the question for the rest of Scripture. That ability to to set your eyes on the heavenly city is something that uh, – there was a passage that I was quoting this week in our, our personal worship where Paul says, we walk by faith and not by sight. It was from Second mm-hmm. Corinthians chapter 5. And um, that idea that we walk by faith and not by sight – the city that we're looking for is a city that's not here now. That kingdom mm-hmm. is not here now. And to the people of, of the ancient world or even of the modern world, I mean, if they're looking for evidence that appeals to their five senses as to which is the greater city, it's going to seem to them like Babel, you know, the city of man, yeah. is the greater city because that's the city that's that's here, that they're among. And so – it's really the eyes of faith that are needed to be able to see that the mm-hmm. heavenly city is the greater city. Yeah, and and the Bible's going to make it a point. We'll talk about that in a minute when 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 the Tower of Babel comes along. When you get to Genesis chapter eleven, their motives are the anti-gospel. Their motives for building the Tower of Babel are diametrically opposed to the ethic that Christ will call us to. And and it's very clear. I mean, it's it's absolutely obvious when you put them next to one another that the scriptures are saying, "Don't put your hope in Babylon." You know, one of the things I've also heard people uh, say over the years is that some of these ancient kingdoms that are described in the Bible and so forth were are sort of made up. They, they're not really. They didn't really exist. I remember for years it was always the Hittite Empire that didn't exist until, of course, they uncovered archaeological evidence yeah. of the Hittite so. Empire. Yeah. It's like it just keeps – just archaeology just keeps ruining all these critics of the Bible. <laughs> um, is, do we have archaeological evidence of Babylon and of Babel and of, these, of this great empire? A bunch of evidence, a massive amount of evidence. In fact, one of the one of the one of the most obvious things is we find what are called ziggurats. Mm-hmm. You know, we call them ziggurats, but they would have called them towers back in the day. You know, they didn't build skyscrapers. You know, right, they built right. these stepped staged pyramids. And when you go throughout that whole region, you find these ziggurats, these towers that were built all over that region and and multiple cities. Um, all through the region, and you find that much much of what you find in the Bible is exactly what's described in the ruins of these cities. It's really fascinating. Hmm. Um, so in Genesis, at the end of Genesis 11, we'll be introduced to a guy named Abraham, and we're told that he comes from Ur. And Ur of the Chaldees, which is over, you know, this is one of the cities that's going to be founded under Nimrod's kingdom, massive amounts of archaeological finds, including a ziggurat. We know their gods, who they worshipped, and they all align. You know, Terah worshipped the moon god. Um, Then we're told that they leave and Abraham's family goes to Haran, which worshipped the very same moon god. It was kind of the patron city of those, the patron god of both of those cities. And the more we find about the ancient culture, we found their legal codes. There's the Ur-Namu legal code. You're probably sorry for asking me the question by now. But But one of the interesting things that when you read the Ur-Namu legal code that we have discovered that was, you know, contemporary with Abraham, 
all of the things that you find in Abraham's life and the things that he did, the the customs that take place in the family, it's right out of the legal code of that day, which we've discovered. It's really fascinating. Hmm. Now, for those that um, aren't familiar with the term ziggurat, uh, it's a sort of stepped uh, pyramid, mm-hmm. you know, and one of the things that uh, marvels of modern technology, when we talk about they didn't build skyscrapers back then, the reason is that building a skyscraper is hard. You know, they um, this our modern skyscrapers and buildings start off as these huge steel frameworks that are massively reinforced, and then you hang everything on that steel skeleton uh, of the building, or if they don't use steel, some other kind of metal. But just this idea that uh, that that's a relatively advanced, you know, modern building technique and so back then if they wanted to build a very very tall whatever it was you started with a very very big Mm -hmm. base and you kept stepping it in and stepping it in and stepping it in so these ziggurats i mean some of these bases must have been huge huge all right like the size of a of several football fields you know in in terms of of length Mm -hmm. and so forth length and width um, so these are going to be really, really big structures, and they're mm-hmm. going to look vaguely pyramid-like with stairs going up the side. Yeah, what's what's interesting is they they recently uncovered a a big historical thing where there were etchings in a, a slab, and it was um, Nebuchadnezzar, who's still not going to be around for almost two thousand years after the story of the Tower of Babel, but on his um, this slate where he's recording his own history, you see Nebuchadnezzar next to one of these staged pyramids. And on the bricks that they've recovered from Babylon, he put his stamp, you know, that this brick came from Nebuchadnezzar. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's interesting is archaeologists have discovered that Nebuchadnezzar was finishing a project that was begun more than a thousand years earlier that would have been there at least at the time of Hammurabi where they began work on a on a ziggurat but didn't complete it. Huh. And Nebuchadnezzar came back later and he began work and there's a lot of people who wonder if that was the 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 beginning of the Tower of Babel. It's really kind of fascinating to ponder about. We don't know for sure. Um but it's fascinating. Huh. Well, before we get into the Tower of Babel, was there was there more about Noah's sons that we need to understand? Yes, and this is I love this. So when when you have Shem, Ham, and Japheth, you've got these three sons, and they go in all directions. And so the table of nations, all of humanity, traces back to Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And so the gospel does something really wonderful. You have after Jesus's death burial, resurrection, and ascension into heaven, he had told his disciples, you're going you're gonna to be my witnesses, and you know, starting in Jerusalem, then to Judea, Samaria, then to the ends of the earth. And what happens, that happens in Acts chapter 2, or Acts chapter 1, and in Acts chapter 2, you have Pentecost, and then you're expecting this explosion for them to obey and go be missionaries in distant lands, and they basically don't do anything. <laughs> you know, like, we, we can relate to that, right? Um, but then, you know, there you have some bold disciples that are, you know, sharing the gospel in Jerusalem, and they're being persecuted. But the the great event that sparks the evangelistic tidal wave that goes out from Jerusalem and Judea happens in Acts chapter seven, when you have the deacon um, Stephen, who's going to become the world's the first martyr, and when when the 
when the leading authorities among the Jews of that day put Stephen to death, and the Apostle Paul is one of them persecuting him famously, um, after they're persecuted, everybody freaks out and they scatter, and it says that they go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And then after Acts chapter 7, which is the persecution of Stephen, you have three chapters, and I'm convinced that God and his sovereignty is doing something really beautiful here. In Acts chapter 8, you have a son of Ham, who's this Ethiopian eunuch who comes to Jerusalem to worship the Lord, um, no doubt as a eunuch, which means that you know he's had his masculinity taken away. I, I don't know how else to say that. <laughs> Any polite, polite way yeah. to describe it, yes, okay. So as a child, he would have had his masculinity taken away so that he would be totally – he would have no family. He would have no one, no wife, no children. He'd be totally loyal to the queen. He comes to Jerusalem. Eunuchs would not have been allowed in the temple in those days. The, the first century Jerusalem was notoriously racist. Um, against any outsider. And so we're told that he's heading home. He's going back to Ethiopia, and we're told that he's on the road to Gaza. And each, you'll notice, the road to Gaza heads to the south and to the west. And God takes one of his best evangelists in the middle of a revival that's happening in Samaria, Philip, and he says, I want you to go to the road to Gaza and get this guy. One man, right? And so Philip bails on this revival to chase after this one man, and when he finds him, the guy's reading through Isaiah 53, which is such a beautiful chapter that's so totally pointing to Jesus. Isaiah wrote it 700 years before Jesus, but it talks about how the Savior of the world's going to take the sin upon himself, how he's going to suffer and die, um, and it points to his resurrection, right? And so it, it, the eunuch is reading this, and he's like, I can't make any sense of this. And so Philip's like, here, let me tell you what just happened. <laughs> let me you interpret know, it for I'll you. I'll fill sure. it in yeah. for you. And the guy is like, I'm in. Like, And so he's baptized. Philip is rejoicing, you know, and he leaves. And so then God has brought in to the family of God a son of Ham. Then, in Acts chapter 9, the guy, Paul, who oversaw the stoning of Stephen is on the road, don't miss that, so the first one happens on the road to Gaza toward the population of Ham. The next one is going to be on the road to Damascus, and this is going to be a Jewish or an Israelite man named Saul who will become the apostle Paul. He's a descendant of Shem, Mm -hmm. and he is struck blind by the presence of the Lord who confronts Paul and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Which is awesome. And Paul has this radical conversion. And so in Acts chapter 8, God pulled in a son of Ham. In Acts chapter 9, the Lord pulls a son of Shem. And then you get to Acts chapter 10 and on the road to Joppa. So they all have these roads. That's not accidental. And Mm -hmm. they're all going to the direction where the three sons of Noah are. And so on the road to Joppa, which is a port city that where you would go if you wanted to go to Europe, which is where the sons of Japheth settled, now you have Cornelius. Peter is going to have the conversation with Cornelius that Gentiles can be grafted into the kingdom of God. And so in Acts chapter 10, God calls Japheth to himself. And what that's intended to show us is the Old Testament and the fallen, broken nature of man. The whole world is falling apart. We're all going in different directions, speaking different languages, different nationalities, different geopolitical alliances and allegiances. And what the what Acts is showing you is that now that the gospel has been unleashed on the world, God is calling Ham 
home. Mm. God is calling Japheth home. God is mm. calling Shem home. And in Christ, all the sons of Noah, all the table of nations are coming together as one people under one banner. It's unifying the world. The gospel is overthrowing the table of nations to bring them under one diverse people, under one banner. And it's really wonderful. Um, I love that the book of Acts does that, and I think it's totally deliberate. Yeah, I hadn't – actually, b- before you mentioned that today, I'd never really thought about the fact that those three stories, which occur in, in rapid succession there, mm-hmm. actually featured in you know by descendants – each of the three sons of Noah. That is very interesting. Yeah. And the roads. I mean, even where the roads are pointing, the road to Gaza, the road to Joppa, the road to Damascus, it's pointing in the direction where the sons of Shem, Ham, and Japheth settled. It's, I think it's totally deliberate. It's God's beautiful sovereignty there. Mm. This mighty kingdom of Babel was formed, um, mm. and what sort of place was it? Do we know much about it? Uh, well, Babel becomes Babylon. Um, so we know that it was a very, very wealthy city. I mean, there's, an, there's two Babylonian empires that emerge. One is old Babylon, one's new Babylon uh, that comes much, you know, more than a thousand years later. Okay. Uh, but it's a very, very wealthy city. All of the cities that become part of this kingdom in the ancient world, like when we look, they're, they're industrious. They're very wealthy considering they're – this is where language develops. Um, you know, the oldest written language and languages in the world—they're all right here, right. which is which is interesting, by the way. Right. Um, there's two exceptions to that, but almost all of the the oldest written languages of the world. So, of the the first twenty written languages, eighteen of them are within a thousand miles of Babel. Now, when you consider that the circumference of the Earth is you know more than twenty four thousand miles, you know. 18 of the first 20 languages emerge right within a radius of Babel. Um, and the only two that are further than that, Mycenae, um, which is Greece, and the other one is Old Chinese. But language, very interesting, explodes right in this region. It's interesting, too, because a lot of the things that we think of as modern civilization, you know, all sprung up out of that area. I mean, the Code of Hammurabi, for example, which is where we get um, this idea of an eye for an eye. Eye for an eye, yeah. Right. There was a thing in the Code of Hammurabi that if a, if a man uh, broke the bone of one of his equals, mind you, it had to be an equal. You could mm-hmm. obviously, you could do what you wanted to somebody that was of lower status. But if you broke the bone of an equal, then the same bone would be broken on you in mm-hmm. return. So yeah. that Code of uh, Hammurabi predates Moses. Yeah. By the way. Yeah. You could kind of see what it was when when man was making the rules versus what it was when God was making the rules. Mm-hmm. Um when you look at the law of Moses, uh you know, especially the the famous of the you know the 10 commandments, I you know, I get the feeling that um the the Code of Hammurabi was all about when you mess up and if you mess up, this is what's going to happen to you. And the Ten Commandments, to me, are about if you follow these commandments, then you won't mm-hmm. mess up. It's like yeah. they were they were protections. It's like Safety God was, and blessing, yeah. Exactly. God was trying to protect and bless his people, uh, whereas mm-hmm. the Code of Hammurabi was, the other, was very much concerned with, okay, so when you do this and when you do that, here's the things that are going to happen <laughs> to you, and spelled them out in great detail. And, I mean, that's the difference between – you know, God who is merciful and is concerned for our good, and man who just wants to make sure that what what's mine is mine and stays mine, and you don't get it. <laughs> you know? Pretty much, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so these people they decide that um, they want to start creating 
a tower. Mm-hmm. Is that where we're at? Have we reached the tower now? Is it time to yeah. talk about the yeah, tower? I think, okay. So jumping into Genesis 11, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So they said Which, to what, This is connected to Nimrod. Sorry. You know, he's the founder of Babel. Right. And if you go all through history, you know, Jewish scribes in the ancient world actually called Assyria, they called Assyria the the land of Nimrod. They, uh-huh. they referred to the Tower of Babel as the Temple of Nimrod. So all through tradition in the ancient world attributed the Tower of Babel to Nimrod. And it's interesting that they would call it the Temple of Nimrod because it it's becomes a symbol of, as you say, this kingdom mm-hmm. of man that wants to essentially replace God. You had a understanding of what they maybe were trying to do with the tower with respect mm-hmm. to the flood. Um, but they yeah, started – oh, well, go ahead. You want to talk about that now? I was just going to say it's not my idea. Josephus, who is a contemporary – he was contemporary to Jesus, first century historian who was a historian to the emperor of Rome but was Jewish. Um, he captured what was a prevalent belief in the ancient world that – they built the Tower of Babel to be a defense against God that should God ever flood the world again, they will have a sanctuary so high that he won't be able to drown them again. And that's interesting. You know, it doesn't say that in Scripture, but that was one of the takes in the ancient world as to why uh, they chose to do that. Mm. It's fascinating. So when they decided to build the tower, it says they said to one another, this is in uh, chapter uh, Genesis 11, verse 3, says, so they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. So this was – Which, a- by the way, was the prevalent building style of all those ancient – um, ziggurats that you find scattered through the region, exactly that. And the idea that they wanted to burn them thoroughly, I think mm-hmm. that, that the point there is that they were trying to make them very, very hard mm-hmm. so that it would be – they were trying to build something that was going to last. They yeah. were – These this, weren't mud brick. They weren't. And like, this was a, a way of saying this is going to be – at least I've always understood this way. This is a tower that's going to stand forever. Mm-hmm. This is an eternal tower. We're building an eternal structure. Um, that kind of a thing. That, that, that the very construction of it was a bit defiant. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it says that, uh, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And I like this. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were concerned about God dispersing them. Right. So every bit of this is defiance. Um and and this is what I mean by it. Like it gives us clues in um, the this statement. Let's build for ourselves a mm-hmm. city, which which you know not not the Lord's city. We're not interested in in His mission. This is all about me. I want a kingdom for myself. Mm-hmm. Is the idea with a tower that reaches into the heavens? So what's what's the goal there? And and this is I'll pause here because you don't and all the commentaries I've read they don't put this together but I'm convinced of this so this is a Sam thought <laughs> so so take that for what it's worth time for the Sam commentary <laughs> and and I think some people would agree with this but when they built these ziggurats in the ancient world everybody knows everybody agrees with this that when they built the te- the temples you find these all over the world you find them Aztec Mayan you find them in Australia China. Uh, people would build these pyramid-like or ziggurat-shaped pyramids. And the reason why they would do that is they believed there was something in them that made them believe that God comes specially on mountaintops. 
Oh, now, okay. Now, now that you see that in Eden, right? Eden is this mountaintop paradise. Sure. Um, and the scriptures you find it. Moses is on Mount Sinai. Jesus is will you know have a sermon on the mount. The transfiguration is on top of an exceedingly tall mountain. You go throughout all the different cultures of the ancient world. And it's really fascinating. Like they build their temples on mountains. The Greeks had Mount Olympus. And so there's this idea that on top of mountains, God comes to dwell with you. And there's one of the things that you learned in Sunday school that you need to disabuse yourselves of. They were not trying to build a tower so that they could get to heaven. <laughs> you know, they're not like, oh, we love the Lord and we just want to be with him and we're going we're gonna to work really hard to build a tower to get to heaven so we can be with God and give him a hug. No. <laughs> they're building a tower to get to the heavens so that they can replace him. Yeah. And so, so what they would do when they would build these ziggurats, the priest or the king would go up to the pinnacle of the tower – claim to meet with the divine, and then speak to the people with the authority of the gods. And so it's totally manipulative. So you're building a tower to the heavens, and then guess what? Nimrod is going to come down and say, thus saith the Lord, or thus saith the gods. And that's what the ancient cultures would do. They would go up and they would present from these ziggurats the will of the gods, and it gave them more authority. And so we're building for ourselves a kingdom. The tower gives us the authority to speak on behalf of God. Now it's so that we may make a name for ourselves. So here in this, we want it to be about our kingdom. We're going to build ourselves a city. We're going to have the authority. What we say goes that we might make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the earth. Now in those four things, build a, build a city for ourselves, tower that reaches the heavens, that we may make a name for ourselves – and not be scattered all over the earth. That is the anti-gospel. Um, remember what God said to Adam when he gave the, the cultural mandate? He mm -hmm. says, you know, you're, you're to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth right. and subdue it. So God's command for humanity is to take his design, his heavenly design, and to take it over the entire earth. And here you have man saying, no, we're going to build for ourselves a kingdom so that we're not scattered all over the face of the earth. It's, it's absolute total defiance, mm -hmm. you know, and where you have the people of God who are calling on the name of the Lord, they're only interested in making a name for themselves. There's, you know, do you rely on the word of God or do you build a tower that reaches to the heavens so that you can speak the authority of God? And it's all about building for ourselves a city or a kingdom. And when you get to the New Testament, this – is the the definite if the city of man these are the ethics these are the founding ethics and let me just rehearse them for for you again number 1 my kingdom is more important than god's kingdom that's number 1 mm -hmm. number 2 my word's more important than god's word number mm -hmm. 3 my name is more important than god's name mm -hmm. four my will what I want to do, not be scattered, is more important than God's will. And so you have Nimrod and the people saying, we're in full-on rebellion. We are not going to do what he would have us do. Mm. I wonder whether, too, this idea of, you know, we don't want to be scattered across the face of the earth, 
or dispersed over the face mm-hmm. of the whole earth was in reaction. Like you mentioned, the cultural mandate, whether that was actually it was was a deliberate reaction to that. Like God wants us to go and fill the earth. No, no, we're going to stay right here in this valley because this is pretty good here. Mm-hmm. We've got it pretty good here. Uh, we don't want to go and make ourselves uncomfortable and face dangers and risks mm-hmm. and so forth. Um it's like their their desire uh, for comfort and for uh, being able to control their own destiny. I just kind of wonder whether that wasn't a rebellion of you know, just a very specifically of God. You want us to go and fill the earth? No, no, you know we're 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 good. <laughs> we're good right here. You know we're good right here. I mean, we think about it. What what the Lord calls us, and and in the scriptures, the Lord calls on us to stretch, to live our lives for the sake of the kingdom, and that means. That we're going to be made uncomfortable, right? You know, you're going to be scattered. You're going to have to stretch. You're going to have to use your resources for a kingdom that's not your own. Mm-hmm. And what they're saying is, no, we're going to hoard. We're going to be safe. We're going to be secure right here. Thank you very much. Um, it, it's difficult to go out. It's difficult to give up your comforts and your safety and everything else and go do the mission that God has called you to. Mm-hmm. Um, but Jesus, you know, what's he going to say in the Great Commission? You know, he calls us to go. To the whole earth. You know, sure. that hasn't changed for us. You know, right. we're called to be uncomfortable for the sake of a greater kingdom. And what they're saying is, no, 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 it's not your kingdom, it's my kingdom. It's not your word, it's my word. It's not your name, it's my name. It's not your will, it's my will. Mm. Um, and that, by the way, plays out in everyday decisions that we have as believers, those two ethics of two different kingdoms. Um, I mean, so you think about the way that God has called you to live your life mm-hmm. for the sake of advancing his kingdom. And you say, but that would make me really uncomfortable. I don't want to do that. You know, I don't want to tithe. I don't want to help the poor. I don't want to get involved in injustice. That's you saying, I don't want to be scattered. Right. I don't want to be stretched. Right. I'm comfortable here. I, I, I like my tower. I don't need yeah. to, I don't need to go outside of it. Yeah. That's right. I mean, that's the same ethic. Yeah. And it's an ethic of the city of man. It's no good. So then verse 5 tells us, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Um, that phrase, the Lord came down to see mm-hmm. the city and the tower, That when I read that, of course, the first thought was, what, God didn't couldn't see it from heaven? Well, of course God could see from heaven if he wanted to. So – there was a when it says the Lord came down to see the city. Does that is does that mean anything significant to you that the Lord came down to see it? You know, it could be that He came down and manifested Himself to somebody. I think more of it is it, it's written in a way that we understand, like uh-huh. He's He's coming to interact. You know, it's it's not that He's not omnipresent. You know, He has to come down or He's getting and He's engaging it is yeah. the idea. Yeah, I kind of got the feeling that uh, it was sort of like. The, the people were saying, we're going to build a tower that's going to reach the heavens, the idea that we can replace God, we don't need God, but that in the in almost sort of like an, an, a point, counterpoint thing, God said, no, no, I'll come down. <laughs> you know, it's like, I just, you know, I, I, I just kind of get that feeling when I read it. It's like, you're going to build a tower to reach the heavens? That's okay. Yeah. Listen, I'm going to come down and see this for myself. That's so cool. this I idea that's that the heavens were that the heavens were much farther than they than they thought with this tower. We're building this tower as high as we can possibly imagine it being. Surely, we have reached the heavens where God is, and God's like, I'll come down. <laughs> you just hang out right and, there, and that's what he does. Like that's always the Lord. Like think of how much humility this is. 
you know, that the Lord comes down. And he doesn't deliver wrath or justice. He comes down and intervenes to spare humanity the evils that would have come had he not. Yeah. And then he says in verse 6, And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible to them. I want to ask this question just in—we don't need to spend a lot of time on it, but it, but if people read Genesis 10, uh, it was a question that, that had been raised in, in one of those— you know, talks about possible contradictions in the Bible. But in Genesis 10, which we're thinking in our minds, comes before Genesis 11. That's what, that's how we're perceiving it. It makes kind of a big deal about how the, the descendants of Noah, the different descendants, the sons of his sons had all these different languages. Mm-hmm. And so, and then so here we're being told that the people had one language and God's mm-hmm. saying, look, they have all one language. Um, that's not is that's not really a contradiction, right? I mean, there's there's a there's a timeline thing here. Mm-hmm. So Genesis Genesis ten is kind of parenthetical in the scriptures because it's describing where all the nations go in time. Okay, and and not every sit not every person on earth is is in Babel at this time. You know, it's not like the entire population of Earth comes to the city and gets scattered. Right. But what happens here is prior to this, like you, you have to think when they came off the ark, you had one family with one language, and they just kind of kept that up until you get to Nimrod. And what God is – God, in his mercy, confuses the languages. And, you know, I, I wrote this down um, when, I was, when I was writing about this. I wrote this down because I was thinking, you know, is it merciful for God to confuse the languages? And Good I wrote question. this. I said, one would assume – that a common language would only help to ensure human flourishing. However, that's entirely based on the assumption that mankind is good. For a righteous and humble population, a common language would allow them to express love and compassion for one another in a peaceful and just society. On the contrary, a self-absorbed and depraved population, for them, a common language would actually provide an avenue for strife and division. It would enable wicked men to collaborate toward destructive ends. And I said, I wrote this, which is the part I wanted to get to. Consider the advancements in communication in our modern world. With the dawn of each new invention, from the telephone to the television to the internet and social media platforms, it's become far easier to communicate with people around the globe. And what's the result? The sinful nature of mankind transforms these blessings into tragic vices almost immediately. Today, with a simple touch of a keyboard, the most destructive, cruel, and perverse elements in our society can flourish precisely because communication has become simpler. Mm-hmm. And that's I th- one of the central themes that come out of this is when the gospel is at the root, when people commit themselves to righteousness, redeemed people commit themselves to righteousness, speaking one language – brings flourishing but for wicked man wicked men there's no limit to the evils they can do and so god in his mercy confuses the languages and scatters them hmm. it's it's like fallen men can take any good thing and make it destructive hmm. now when it says when god says that and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them hmm. um he's not saying that they could get rid of me if they wanted to, for example. He's just so. What's he referring to when he says nothing that they propose to do will be impossible to them? Yeah, I think he's looking at their ambitions of what they wanted to do in that moment, and uh-huh. he's like, they will accomplish it. 
Right. You know, all this, they're going to make a name for themselves. They're going to do exactly what they say they're going to do, and they will be able to accomplish it if this continues. And so eventually they're going to sort of, you know, infect mm-hmm. this whole world with this rebellion against me. Correct. Yeah. Um, so then he proposes a solution, which is come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And it says, so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off the bu- left off building the city. So that kind of implies, like you were talking before about, they think that Nebuchadnezzar went back and was finishing mm-hmm. some buildings that were more than a thousand years old. So mm-hmm. God interrupted their their building. They never they never finished this city. Correct. And and you find in that uh, so when Nebuchadnezzar did this. He restored and enlarged it. And they estimate that Nebuchadnezzar's attempt had 17 million bricks in it. When Herodotus, who's living around 400 BC, when Herodotus went through there, um, he described it as a solid tower that was 220 yards long and broad. So more than two football fields was just the base of this thing that was in ancient Babylon. And we, we just have the ruins of it now because it was destroyed by Alexander the Great and his conquest. He, there's records of where he tears it down. Hmm. This really is a quintessentially worldly city. It's this idea mm-hmm. of human self-determination, human achievement, human grandiose, all these things that are, you know, we're going to make a name for ourselves. We're going to control our own destiny and everything else. And that, that God chose not to destroy them. Mm-hmm. It's like he he could have toppled over that city and left the other ones that weren't uh, you know that weren't a problem, <laughs> and yet he didn't. He you know he went down and, and and he took what some would see as sort of a a remedial step. You know he confused their languages and he dispersed them. He he, he scattered them so they weren't all together in one place anymore. But he in doing so he allowed to live. An empire and and people that would then continue to be in rebellion to him mm-hmm. from that point forward. Yeah, I mean the, the the kingdoms that are being birthed in this ancient world will be a major thorn in the side of Israel even after Moses and the slavery. Assyria will conquer all of the ten northern tribes. That's a that's a kingdom that was rooted initially in Nimrod. Babylon will destroy Jerusalem. Um, and the two southern tribes. So this, these, what Nimrod founds has a legacy for the remainder of Scripture of being a thorn in the side of God's people. They're at war. Mm. And so what's, what's another thing that's really fascinating, and this is what makes me think the Lord is very deliberate in how he's setting this up, is you get these founding ethics of Babel. Let's make a name for ourselves and build a kingdom for ourselves and not be scattered when in the next chapter, chapter 12, you get the father of our faith, right? Um, and his ethic is radically different, right? So we're told, you know, that Abraham called on the name of the Lord. He's not making a name for himself. And God, what is God's promise back to Abraham? I will make your name great, which is just cool. Like, mm-hmm. you know, Abraham gives his allegiance to God and God says, hey, you know, the whole name thing, you let me worry about that. I'll mm-hmm. make your name great. Um for Babel, they want to build for themselves a city, but for Abraham, Hebrews 11, verse 10, tells us, you know, one of the reasons why Abraham is great for the kingdom of God is because he didn't 
settle in a city here. He dwelled in tents, and he was looking for a city whose builder and architect was God. And so, you know, the kingdom of man is, let's build our kingdom here. Abraham lives as a sojourner. Nothing here is his home. He's he's looking for a home that's in heaven. Mm-hmm. And in the Babylon ethic, it's, you know, we're not going to be scattered anywhere. We're going to, you know, dwell here and you're not going to remove us. And so what is Abraham? God comes to him in Haran and says, go, <laughs> you know, and I, go somewhere. I'm not even going to tell you where to go. I'll tell you when you get there. And Abraham doesn't say, no, 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 I refuse to be scattered. He just goes, you know. <laughs> and so there's this – these are the founding ethics. And I think Genesis 11 and the, the story of the Tower of Babel is so directly against the ethic that you see in Abraham. Let's make a name for ourselves. God will make our name great. Let's build a kingdom for ourselves. No, no, no. We're going to keep our eyes fixed on the heavenly kingdom. Let's you know, not be scattered. I'm going to go wherever you tell me, God. And you see those same ethics then picked up in the Lord's Prayer. It's very, I think, very intentional. These are the core ethics. When, when Jesus, his disciples come to him and they say, hey, Jesus, you know, we want to be good at prayer. Can you teach us how to pray? And he offers them the Lord's Prayer, the first three petitions. What are they? You know, this is how you should pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, right. n- not mine. Right. Your kingdom come not mine. Your will be done, not mine. Right. So when you make that prayer, you, what you're saying is, give me the ethic of the city of God, like right. Abraham. Help me to make it about your name and your kingdom and your will. And implicit in that is not mine. Lord, help give me a heart that wants you to be exalted, not care about my reputation. Help me to set aside all the petty things about my kingdom so that your kingdom can be lifted high. Help me to make your will priority, not my desires, your desires. And that is that that's that's what's at war between the kingdom of man. And we all have this in us where we, you know, we want to make it about this world and this kingdom. But the ethic of the city of God calls you away from that to live for him. And then the promise from the Lord in return is, I'll make your name great. I'll make you royalty in my kingdom. I will give you an inheritance that can never be taken away. You were telling me before we got started that you believe this really was redeemed at Pentecost. Absolutely. Uh, I think the Lord is very deliberate in how he lays this out. So Pentecost is recorded in the book of Acts in chapter 2, and what we're told Starting in verse 5, it says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. And so the idea, what it's asking you to imagine is we have devout people of God who now from every nation have come back to Jerusalem. And so where, where you have the Tower of Babel, all these people explode outward. At Pentecost, you have people from every nation coming together. And what's the miracle in verse 6 is at the sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And so this is called the gift of tongues that it's referred to. And it's a miracle that all these people who come from these different nations and they're speaking different languages at the miracle of Pentecost now understand one another. And if you understand what God was doing 
at the Tower of Babel, why did he give them all different languages? Well, it was a mercy because in their wickedness, understanding only brought further ruin. They just conspired for evil. But now together in the gospel, the converts of Christ are brought into union, all the nations coming together under one banner again, and the Lord enables them to understand one another. And I mean, if you were, <laughs> if we were ever in a season where people just do not understand one another, uh, and we use language to tear one another down, like what the Lord is communicating here, and, and maybe this is just an object lesson. It's you know, it's a great miracle, but I think in this is an object lesson that when people come together for the sake of the gospel and they are filled with the Holy Spirit, all the hallmarks of division are wiped away. Mm. Understanding can happen again. And if there's ever a time that I've been alive, you know, I'm 42, and I've never, ever been alive at a time where there was so much division, where it was impossible to to understand one another, and it's just vitriol. What this passage is saying is that when people come together from all the different nations and they're unified in the gospel and filled with the Holy Spirit, that is when God gives a supernatural measure of grace to where we understand one another, and the most important banner for all of us, no matter where we come from, is the banner of Christ and every other distinctive fades to a distant second place beneath the gospel of Jesus Christ. All of these barriers that we see, the barriers that are that are racial, that are national, that are cultural, that are economic, all these barriers are all broken down. Paul actually says that that in Christ that the reconciliation breaks down the dividing wall of hostility. Um so that all of these things that are that make us different and apart from each other and at odds with each other, all of these things fade away when we are motivated by the Spirit and moved by the Spirit and and, and come together and are unified in the Spirit, having that common mind, that one mind, Paul says, um, that that's the point at which all of these things fall away, and then we can come together because we are at that point not going to try to make a name for ourselves. Mm-hmm. We're going to see to it that His name is glorified. Because honestly, bringing glory to the name of God—that's that's why we're here. We're mm-hmm. here to glorify God's name. Amen. And and you know, selfishly, one of the tragic ironies that happen at Babel is all of the stuff that they're chasing after. All of those desires can only be ultimately satisfied and submitting to the Lord. So, like, you know, they want to make their name great, but, like, how much greater can your name be than to be written in the Lamb's Book of Life? Mm. How much greater to have the Lord look at you and to say, hey, when you submit to me, I will make your name great. You know, we're seeking after glory and kingdoms, but how incredible is it that the Bible tells us that we, this is Second Thessalonians chapter 2, that we will share and the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we're called a, a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand in Isaiah. We're, we're, we're told that we're going to reign in heaven alongside Christ. Like, and, and all of this is given to us because this God went to a garden of Gethsemane and said, not my will but yours be done. Like mm. he, you know, he doesn't just preach at us. You know, the Lord Jesus came into this world from a kingdom of heaven where he was worshipped by angels 
and came into a kingdom where he was utterly despised. He came into a kingdom where his name was reviled. He came into a kingdom where his will submitted to the Father's, and he endured unbelievable torment, torture, and death. Why? So that he could give us this unshakable kingdom, this banner under which all the nations of the world can find unity. Because it's not going to be, I promise you, you're not going to find those treasures under red Republicans, blue Democrat. Like, politics can never give us what our hearts are longing for. It's found in the gospel and in the gospel alone. And that's where we find unity. Well, we'll let that stand as our last word from Genesis 10 and 11 and the story of the sons of Noah and the Tower of Babel and the city of Babylon. We hope that uh, that these are things that you can take and apply to our current situation today and recognize that we do need to come together and be unified under the banner of God. We do invite you to uh, correspond with us. If you have a question or a comment that you'd like to make, you can send us email out of water at riovistachurch.com. That's R-I-O, vistachurch.com, which is also where you can find all the back episodes of Out of Water, including show notes and other information. You can get that at riovistachurch.com slash out of water. You can also find us on Apple Podcast, on Google Play, or on Spotify. Sam and I will be back next week, and we look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us, and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.